0: Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, the novelist, Phil Clyde, me, Jacob Siegel, the knocker off of Tall Hats. May you continue to be a person. Today we've got a essay by a Czech in exile, still a Czech But uh, A Man in Exile, Joseph Skvorecki, called Red Music, chronicling his experiences in a jazz band and the meaning of jazz to totalitarian systems. And that was published in 1979. We're a bit uncertain on the original provenance of the essay, but uh, varying accounts have it originally written in Czech, Um, in a journal called Persia, or potentially as the introductory essay to a novella. But we'll get more into Skvareki soon enough. And then for the art today, a personal favorite on the jazz theme, Mal Waldron plays Eric Satie. That's uh, the jazz pianist Waldron with his trio in his big in Japan period playing the music of the esoteric minimalist French composer, Eric
1: Satie. We'd also like to thank Fairfield University for sponsoring Manifesto, a podcast. Fairfield is a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach there. So it's great to be associated with Fairfield and we thank them for their sponsorship.
0: So, Phil, how did we wind up with this essay? Tell me more about Skvarecki.
1: So I <laughs> I got into Skvarecki because I'm, I'm writing a novel that deals with Prague, uh, that deals with Czechoslovakia, and also the underground church. And somebody recommended The Miracle Game as the great Czech Catholic novel. And so I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And I told my mom about this and asked her if she'd read it. She hadn't, but we decided we we're going to read it together. The Miracle Game. My my mom spent time in, in Prague in the 70s when my grandfather uh, was a diplomat there. And I begin reading the first chapter and it's about a guy who has gonorrhea, but he can't get it treated because officially STDs have been uh, purged from communist Czechoslovakia. That's a decadent Western thing. And so he's looking for the sort of doctor who might, who just from his look, you can tell he might know about such things. And the word is, and the translator must've been really pleased with himself on this one. He's looking for a real pussy pirate. And uh, <laughs> I was like, ah, I'm going to enjoy talking this novel over with my mom. Um, it's a fantastic book. It's really great. Um, actually, my mom liked it. What but, is it with
0: the uh, Czech dissidents and the uh, appeal of sort of um, like body sexual puns? Yeah, among <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know?
1: It's it's definitely a thing. Mm. So he's he's a fascinating uh, writer. He actually kind of launched to fame in Czechoslovakia by being denounced because he had a novel that came out, his first novel, The Cowards. And at the uh, uh, 1959 Congress of the Czechoslovak Writers Union Uh, A leading Stalinist literary critic stepped up and said, and finally, I wish to mention a book that does not belong to the category of the work of the artists I have just mentioned. It is a book by Skvorecki, which I would prefer not to deal with at all, because its whole spirit is profoundly alien to our beautiful democratic and humanistic literature. It is an artistically dishonest thing, untrue and cynical. And the denunciations, but nonetheless publication of the cowards meant that it became one of the most popular czech language novels of the entire communist era
0: and what did the novel deal with i mean i saw some references to this and milos Forman talking about turning it into a film but not who are the titular cowards in the novel
1: it is it's like the czechs in town at the time of the liberation from the nazis right so it's it's a uh sort of cynical i don't know I'm, well it an account of that that is not um at all in keeping with the official um
0: anti-heroic
1: of, yeah and, and 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 you know what the depictions of the soviet soldiers and everything like that yes exactly right right um and also yeah, he was deeply influenced by American literature in, including um what the the communists called literary trash, right, so he was into yeah, my kind of stuff yeah yeah, exactly, yeah, uh you know genre fiction and and um uh detective novels and that sort of stuff, as well as being you know really into hemingway and uh, he was big into langston Hughes as well uh. Who- I didn't see Hughes. That's interesting. I saw, I mean, he clearly had a kind
0: of love love affair with American culture. Yeah. Uh, but I, I saw that he was a, a Lovecraftian. Mm. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it's interesting how you have to be, you can't be an American and get away with this sort of, uh, this kind of like doesn't quite fit together mythos of American culture. It's You have to be a a Czech dissident or, um, you know, an Irish pop singer or something like that to put together all of these, like not quite fitting together influences of American culture into a coherent aesthetic ethos.
1: Well, you, um, yeah, for that you, the the cowards and second publication had three epigraphs, one from Romain Rolland, one from Hemingway, you know, so two Nobel Prize winners, and then another from Milton Mez Mesro. Do you know who Milton? Ah, uh,
0: of course, of course <laughs> I do. So. Uh.
1: Um, yeah, a a voluntary Negro, right? A Russian. Uh, well, you know,
0: you know what that's in reference to a voluntary Negro.
1: Yes. Uh, so
0: he he volunteered in prison, right? Mesro, who was a white Russian Jew, volunteered when he was in prison. Uh, basically identified himself as black, identified as black his whole life uh, since his childhood. I think he grew up in Queens, um, and um, and was in you know in a segregated prison. Went to the the black prison.
1: Yeah partly um, because he thought there would be l- less actual criminals among the black population of the prison, but yeah um, his draft card even reads race Negro right um, uh, so interesting interesting character okay yeah so, but um, we are discussing red music red me- a Sort of essay memoir of his time playing jazz uh, under both Nazis and under um, the Soviets, right? Both yeah. In a band
0: of the of that name, Red Music.
1: Yeah. So he was in a band called Red Music, and uh, I mean, it, it, I'll just read the opening opening paragraph. In the days when everything in life was fresh, because we were 16, 17, I used to blow tenor sax, very poorly. Our band was called Red Music, which in fact was a misnomer, since the name had no political connotations. There was a band in Prague that called itself Blue Music, and we, living in the Nazi protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, had no idea that in jazz, blue is not a color, so we called ours Red. But if the name itself had no political connotations, our sweet, wild music did for jazz was a sharp thorn in the sides of power of the power, hungry men from Hitler to Brezhnev who successively ruled in my native land. Um, and then he sort of goes off and discusses like why, why it is that jazz would have political connotations. Right. And he disputes Leroy Jones claiming that, um, uh, the essence of jazz is protest. He thinks that it's not in a sort of free society. Jazz would not necessarily have political connotations, right? Yeah. Uh, Leroy Jones
0: being the, uh, the other name, the original name of, uh, the writer, also known as Amiri Baraka. Right. Maybe but, to uh, some better known as Amiri Baraka. But yeah. who who had claimed that uh, you know that that it was inherently protest music, and who fashioned himself, he some, some he got flatter over time, Baraka. But who had you know fashioned a, an aesthetics and an ethics of protest?
1: As a, yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> for 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 Jazz is just something sort of far more elemental. An elan vital, a forceful vitality and explosive creative energy as breathtaking as that of any true art uh, that may be felt even in the saddest of blues. Its effect is cathartic. But of course, when the lives of individuals and communities are controlled by powers that themselves remain uncontrolled, slavers, czars, furors, first secretaries, marshals, generals, and generalissimos, ideologists of dictatorships at either end of the spectrum, then creative energy becomes a protest. Yeah, it's. um... I love
0: that opening, and I I feel like you get what's best in the essay. In that that opening paragraph, uh, is sets it up wonderfully. Sort of, um, you know, you, you both get like the major historical stakes, the Nazi occupation, and a kind of deflationary. Comic first person, yeah. Effect of like we're dumb kids, you know. What do we we didn't know, like we called it red music. We had no idea, and like there was another <laughs> band called blue music. They were equally dumb. They didn't even know blue blue. Like we were just we're all dummies, but but we're dummies. Um, we're dummies making art under Nazi occupation, um, and I of course agree in spirit. Yeah, more than in spirit, in body, mind, and spirit, I agree, of course, that um, it's not simply a matter of protest and that the, the vitality is what makes the art worth doing. But the thing that's missing there, it seems to me, and that's implicit in this whole essay, is the Americanness of jazz. Right. As its own kind of, you know, almost like, Youth erotics protest, uh, or, or a, uh, um, you know, a kind of uh, defiance of the order of the day that uh, isn't intended as political, but does carry with it a kind of unspoken allegiance to another kind of culture, the promise of another culture and and place.
1: Yeah. You know, the, it's also, I think, I mean, it's kind of that, that dispute with Amiri Baraka or Leroy Jones. Um, it's like the, it feels like a very kind of check point as well, right? Like the, the Czech dissidents didn't like to be called dissidents, right? Because, um, one of the things was like, well, in this system just kind of going about and living your life the way that you want to is um, is sort of in violation of the of the prerogatives of the regime, right? Like there are a lot of kind of parallel institutions that were set up, but the whole point was not to be necessarily political. I, I, I talked to one guy <clears throat> who was part of this scene uh, when I was in Prague uh, doing research. And he was like, you know, I went to the university, and they were like, do you want to go to this, you know, kind of like underground lecture? And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like there's this whole secret world of the people who are, you know, in opposition to the communists. And he shows up to the lecture, and it's a lecture about Plato. Yeah. You know, just full stop, right? Right. Um, uh, You know, I talked to a bunch of people who were in the illegal Boy Scouts. I was like, well, what did you do in the illegal Boy Scouts? And it was like, well, you know, like we... Woodcrafting, you know, wood, you know, woodland skills, that kind of thing, right? Like, it's the thing that was sort of important was like, this is not something that, def, like, we're not defined by our opposition to something, right? We are. No, it exists outside yeah, the party. We're pursuing our own passions, and that makes us. In opposition to the party, but that's because of, you know, the party, not because that the essence of what we do is about protest and it, it feels like, you know, Leo joins trying to stake out a claim of, of you know, jazz is being fundamentally about protest uh, versus, you know, the, the kind of like, no, this is not it at all. It's about something more basic. Um, you know, feels like an interesting and very yeah. Well, it, yeah,
0: that is interesting and and telling and under a more inarguably more rigidly totalitarian system, right? Comparing now the uh, the Soviet uh, occupation of Czechoslovakia to the you know American society and the. 1950s and 1960s, um, whatever argument you want to make about the repressive characteristics of American society, it, you know there's no question that uh, Soviet dominated Eastern Europe and Central Europe were uh, far less free, far more um, organized around party discipline, etc. It's, uh, it's not a, a point worthy of any serious debate. That being said, you have in the Czech example, the artists saying freedom is still possible. Meaningful individual and associative freedom is still possible outside of the state, right? That's like the meaning of the Boy Scouts is not just about the individual. It's also we can freely associate with one another through the church, through the Boy Scouts, through our sexual liaisons um, and we can determine our own relationships in this way and there remains a sphere of human freedom and human possibility that is unconquerable that belongs only to us and that is not protest because to call it protest would be to organize it in terms of the party organize it in terms of the state but the czech claim the czech you know dissident as it were claim is no, there is still a freedom possible. To say, on the other hand, that everything must be organized either uh, on, you know, for the regime or as a matter of protest is to say, and this is the Baraka claim, is to say either that freedom is impossible or that claims to freedom are a kind of bourgeois betrayal of the responsibility to protest. So either freedom is impossible or freedom is irresponsible. And so you have that claim being made in what is clearly the more free society.
1: Um, yeah, the, there's a there's an interesting bit from uh, one of Vaclav Havel's essays, uh, Six Sides About Culture, where he's talking about the censorship regime. <clears throat> he says, in any case, <clears throat> It seems that our regime can sniff out far better than many an art theoretician what it should consider really dangerous to itself. Hundreds of examples testify that the regime prosecutes most vigorously not what threatens it overtly, but has little artistic power, but whatever is artistically most penetrating, even though it does not seem all that overtly political. The essence of the conflict, in other words, is not a confrontation between two ideologies, for instance, a socialist with a liberal one but a clash between an anonymous, soulless, immobile and paralyzing entropic power and life, humanity, being and its mystery. Um, The counterpart of power in this conflict is not an alternative political idea, but the autonomous free humanity of man and with it necessarily also art, precisely as art as one of the most important expressions of this autonomous humanity. And
0: <laughs> I mean, this is what remains so powerful about Zamyatin's We, essentially a, a century later, as the sort of err uh, text of anti-totalitarian literature. Is that it, th- what remains so powerful about it? Is not its anti-totalitarianness necessarily? It's that the description of the like uncontrollable desire for the other human which animates the the possibility of revolt within this dystopian future is so brilliantly written and is yeah. um like really kind of hallucinatory and um you know there are elements of that novel that are kind of a uh, schematic protest novel you can and you know he's establishing the foundations so you can see where other writers pick up from this but but the least schematic parts of it are the parts where it's just a man like falling at the feet of a woman who he desires and losing his mind with desire for a desire that is ultimately so powerful that it's able to Uh, That it compels him to throw away what he believed to be his own life, and um, and and yet I I find that that's the element that sticks with me all this time later, and certainly like in Kundera, like what's best thinking of a Czech novelist for a moment, who I'm more familiar with because I was just introduced to Skvarecki through Phil's recommendation. You know, the stuff that really lasts in Kundera are the sort of almost like Proustian moments in Kundera, you know, they're very human uh, moments, moments of like silent reflection or not silent, but sort of uh, reflections of an individual character. These, these moments of like sort of, melancholy and erotic ambivalence um erotically charged ambivalence
1: um or also like these moments where they're oh god like i mean he he's so interested in in the way in which um men will sort of project their fantasies onto women right and their kind of erotic attraction to women can Mm -hmm um, at times be almost like this artistic separation from the woman itself. There's a great chapter in the book of laughter and forgetting, uh, Goethe turns Christina into a queen where this like student who's embarrassed by his like tacky small town mistress, this poet like re describes her as being like a true woman. And and as, as like a queen precisely because of the ways that she's not classy and doesn't fit into Prague society. And it, you know, radically changes him or in the joke, but it's like the, the main character tries to seduce this woman, Lucy, and he's totally blind to like this horrific backstory that she has. And then later uh, he's thinking about it. And <clears throat> he says, a wave of anger washed over me, anger against myself at my age at the time, that stupid lyrical age when a man is too great a riddle to himself to be interested in the riddles outside himself. And when other people, no matter how dear, are mere walking mirrors into which he's amazed to find his own emotions, his own worth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is the great Kundera
0: theory of um, authorial perspective, right, that we talked about in the Patreon we did on The Art of the Novel. Um, Oh, no, it was The Curtain. It was the second one. Kundera's got a trilogy of sort of novella length essays on uh, the history of the novel and his uh, his sort of theory of the novel. And, and he counterposes the lyrical stage as the immature stage of a man's development, where he aspires to the heroic, with the mature stage, which is the, the comic stage and the yeah. like, mature novelistic perspective is the comic perspective. And the comic perspective critically is not merely skewering or satirical. It's the perspective that's interested in everything else. Right? Yeah. Like the heroic stage is the solipsistic stage interested only in the aggrandizement of the self, but you have to get over that to see the rest of the world and getting over that and seeing the rest of the world requires a comic perspective because you have to get over yourself, and the the only way to get over yourself is by laughing at yourself.
1: By the way, this is a side note, but um, a, when I was in Prague, I got drunk with the historian who discovered that Kundera had informed on. I know something. you told me about this. Yeah, uh, and he he wasn't he wasn't like interested in Kundera as Kundera. He's interested in the guy who ultimately got arrested and sent to prison. He was like tracking down that story and then yeah. found out that, you know, Kundera had been the one who had revealed where he was, you know, back in, in, when back in, I guess, Pre 68, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah this is, well, this is when he, Kundera was young and still like
0: yeah, yeah long uh, before 68, uh,
1: still like a motivated okay. communist probably. So, right, you, know, right. uh, you know, my read on it is not, and Kundera li- denied this, but yeah, the historian, like he didn't really understand what a big deal it was going to be. So he like wrote the article and then he went to Yosemite with his wife. And then the article broke while he was in Yosemite. And, and he like came back to messages from friends, like you need to get out of the woods and do interviews. <laughs> like this is a huge, huge deal all over the world. Um, and Is that possible Biden. that he he really didn't know that it was going to be a big deal? Come on. This is what he told me. He, I, I, I think okay. he didn't know how big a deal it was going to be, probably. Um But, uh, it, you know, probably, you know, my guess is that this is just Kundera was doing what he thought was right. You know, not like being a snake, but, uh, you know. Believe well, he thought it was general. right to be a snake, right? Yeah. He, he yeah. thought that it was... Informing
0: on people was the higher virtue. Being a snake was the higher, you know. A, um, worrying about not being a snake, like the, the concern over being a snake, is bourgeois morality, right? Like the <laughs> well, but the it, revolutionary it, it, morality demands that you do away with bourgeois indulgences, like personal loyalty because true loyalty is loyalty to the party. Yeah, but also to if there's, the if there's somebody
1: who's an agent of a foreign state, right? You know, a basic kind of like patriotic impulse would be to turn them in, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to to jazz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is, this is
0: quite a digression we've been on here. So so this is Kvorecki's setting all this up. He's setting up first the sort of um, the opposition to jazz under the Nazi opposition to jazz, right? And and the the arc of the essay, the sort of uh, thematic elaboration of the essay, in part is that the, the Nazi opposition to jazz and the you know the Hitlerite and Stalinist opposition to jazz are essentially a unified opposition to jazz and the totalitarian opposition to art is itself unified. And it's it's all coming from the same totalitarian impulse. It's all coming from the same anti-human
1: impulse. Ideologists don't like real life other people's because it cannot be totally controlled. They loathe art, the product of a yearning for life because that too evades control. If controlled and legislated, it perishes. Yeah.
0: It evades control and it evades um, interpretive control, right? I mean, it, among the forms of control that it evades, uh, you know, good art, um, because of course, like there were periods in both the um, in the Third Reich and in the Soviet Union where there was state-sponsored art, party-sponsored art, but the that art had to be orderly, uh, you know, not, not abstract, not, um, open to ambiguities.
1: Maybe just uh, two or three of the rules. I'm not going to read them all because he, he lists some of the rules that the Nazis had for like what music was supposed to be for dance orchestras, right. Which he, which drove, um, Skoraki nuts and they're very specific, right. So, um, Number two, in this so-called jazz-type repertoire, preference is to be given to compositions in a major key and to lyrics expressing joy in life rather than Jewishly gloomy lyrics. Uh... As to tempo, preference is also to be given to brisk compositions over slow ones, so-called blues. However, the pace must not exceed a certain degree of allegro, commensurate with the Aryan sense of discipline and moderation. On no account will negroid excesses in tempo, so-called hot jazz, or in solo performances, so-called breaks, be tolerated. right. uh, the uh, so-called jazz compositions may contain at most ten percent syncopation. The remainder must consist consist of a natural legato movement, devoid of the hysterical rhythmic reverses yeah. characteristic of the music of the barbarian races, and conducive to dark instincts alien to the German people. So-called riffs, etc.
0: Okay, so speaking of the the unity of all totalitarianisms, um, Said Qutb the intellectual forefather of the Muslim brotherhood. You know, Hassan al-Banna is the founder yeah. of the Muslim brotherhood, but say it gets the, the Egyptian intellectual is the sort of um, theoretical, um, ideological progenitor of the movement. And, you know, he famously had this experience coming to America to study. He went to, uh, I forget where it was in Colorado, not Denver, Another city in Colorado, and I'm forgetting for a moment which city it was, but he went to study and was uh, was his experience studying in America was this um, profoundly radicalizing experience for him. Um, And and I think this was, uh, I, I believe it was the late 1920s when he came to America and he was appalled, um, disgusted by the sort of sexual licentiousness, uh, what he perceived to be the sexual licentiousness of the American women and, the the, you know, cavorting in the streets. And um, when he returned to Egypt, he published uh, a long essay, The America That I Have Seen, in which he wrote about you know the sort of evils of jazz. And this is uh, quoting here now from Katoob's essay in its dealing with jazz. The American is primitive in his artistic taste, both in what he enjoys as art and in his own artistic works. Jazz music is his music of choice. This is that music that the Negroes invented to satisfy their primitive inclinations, as well as their desire to be noisy on the one hand and to excite bestial tendencies on the other. The Americans' intoxication in jazz music does not reach its full completion until the music is accompanied by singing that is just as coarse and obnoxious as the music itself. And it goes on in this register, and so this is the um you know, this is the, the intellectual ferment of the Muslim Brotherhood, which gives birth to numerous movements, sub movements, including Hamas, but the power of jazz as a symbol of American freedom, American decadence, uh individualism. Licentiousness, you know, you know, the 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 degree to which jazz was this galvanizing cultural force, global cultural force, um, is hard to overstate. I mean, it was a genuinely radicalizing, um, genuinely radicalizing, radical artistic movement that was, of course, totally apolitical. In its in its self conception, in its I mean, for the for the first five decades at least, there develops a kind of political jazz. Much later, but in all the formative years, the the years which are so disgusting to Kutub, the years which are so inspiring to Skvoresky, that it's totally a political. It's just rhythmic, swinging jazz that is producing these responses.
1: Yeah. I love there's a bit in the um, red music because they, they want to play it, uh, but it's not allowed, so they just changed the titles of songs. You know? <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah. They, they have one composition, The Wild Bull, indistinguishable to the naked ear from Tiger Rad. They played a slow tune, a bend lead, or evening song, uh which is uh, which is actually deep purple, and then the height of our effrontery, the song of rezitova Lota. in fact, saint louis blues, uh sung in Czech by a country girl, the lyrics composed that they might elaborate on our new title for w c handy's theme song uh rezitova, and then there's like the... where I go, I'm on my way to see my Aryan folk, yeah, yeah. And then there's
0: the reverse of that, right? There's the, he, there's an anecdote in the essay where he describes this American musician, Herb something, a Yeah,
1: that's, yeah. So later the Soviets, there's like three years after the Nazis are gone where, you know, they, 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 they're allowed to like, um, play whatever they, they want. And then the same exact rules, you know, almost indistinguishable come down because, you know, all, all totalitarians are the same. And, uh, you know, jazz is perverted, decadent bass, lying, degenerate. They compared the music to the moaning in the throat of a camel and the hiccuping of a drunk. And although it was the music of cannibals, it was, it was, it was at the same time invented by the capitalists to deafen the ears of the martialized world by means of epiletic Epileptic loudmouth compositions. (laughs) Jazz was annihilating the people's own music in their souls. It's incredible. Um, Yeah, but they bring uh, Herb Ward. uh, His, this, uh, he defects to the, you know, Eastern Europe. Um, uh, An American bass player. He'd asked for political asylum in Czechoslovakia delivering another serious blow to American imperialism. And they talk him into playing with them. Uh, We used him ruthlessly. We quickly put together a jazz review entitled, Really the Blues, title stolen from Mez Mesro, printed Herb's super anti-American statement in the program, provided the Prague Dixieland to accompany Herb's homemade blues about how it feels to be followed by American secret police agents a particularly piquant blues in a police state where everybody knew the feeling only too well. Dressed his sexy dancer wife, Jacqueline, in original sack dresses borrowed from a Prague matron who had lived it up in Paris in the 20s and then settled down to enjoy her dancing of the eccentric, decadent Charleston. Uh,
0: yeah, so... Yeah, one of the one of the funny things from that period that he's describing is that this guy, Herb, then, you know, just changes the lyrics to these standards right and like (laughs) he just introduces these anti-american riffs in them and that's enough to smuggle it in for the time being um the fact that he's taking you know you can play jazz if you just add some anti-imperialist anti-american swag to it and then the thing that eventually breaks the relationship is has nothing to do with ideology it's just herb wants more money Yeah. (laughs) so you know (laughs) And and then he goes back to america Right, right. It's yeah, a yeah. classic, great, great American uh, fellow traveler move. You know, go, go to to uh, Czechoslovakia, play some anti-American jazz tunes, demand more money, fail to get it, go back to America. Probably wind up in Vegas doing yeah. a lounge act somewhere, you know.
1: But I just, I love the bit of him, like, you know, complaining about the American police, which, like, you know, would have been no joke, right? During that time, but also it hitting totally different in Czechoslovakia because everybody's like, yes, we know exactly what that's like. The regime that you're complaining about, um, for black Americans, like we sort of, um, understand what it's like to live under a police state and under the threat of police violence. The, uh, yeah, there's an interesting kind of relationship, right? With, um, black artists that the Czechs had, uh, there's an interesting book by Brian K. Goodman, the nonconformist has we've sort of been drawing some of this stuff about Skorecki, uh, where he talks about Czech writers and their relationships with America and, um, black writers were sort of more acceptable to, uh, and often sort of lauded, uh, in the communist countries, right? Because they are, complaining about american racism and american racial violence um, and the you know and then and then there were sort of some great writers like uh, like W WB Du Bois who you know were sort of straightforward communists right um, and uh, Du Bois actually appeared on a Czechoslovak postage stamp but then there were also Folks like Langston Hughes, who was celebrated by the communist establishment, but also beloved by nonconformist writers, artists, and jazz musicians of Skorecki's kind of more underground scene, because you know Hughes never sort of took that plunge that um, that Dubois did, right? And was sort of more more skeptical. And actually, he opens Red Music uh, with a quote from. Langston Hughes, or actually the the book, The Bass Saxophone, which Red Music is in. But jazz is decadent bourgeois music, I was told, for that is what the Soviet press had hammered into Russian heads. It's my music, I said, and I wouldn't give up jazz for a world revolution. Ah, that's what Hughes says. Langston Hughes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's an interesting bit that he tells about Paul Robeson coming to, um, coming to Czechoslovakia and playing like the correct music. And, and Skvorecki sort of later realizing that Robeson, you know, who experienced pretty horrific American racism, um, is sort of being unwittingly, he thinks, used by the Soviets. And he doesn't realize that like, he's coming to just, you know, play music, but the audience is hating him because he's being held up as like, this is the correct music and not all the music that you actually want to play. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating scene. So Robeson is
0: playing to an audience full of checks, trying to perform the role of the dutiful, um, party loyalist. In a country where and i you know my understanding was robeson would basically play sort of like old slave single slave spirituals and sort of folk music which was considered acceptable because it was proletarian music whereas jazz was bourgeois music something along those yeah. lines i believe and uh yeah and they're like no, no no you know play the hits like <laughs> um but i mean Robson Robson was a Stalinist he was um for him i i am sure it made sense in its own way he you know he understood the ideological system from the outside in a way that the Czechs did not see it from the inside and um I don't think he ever entered into like a I don't think there was much reflection from him or uh, self-critique. I could be wrong, but I, I think Robson remained uh, um, committed to the end. I might be wrong about that.
1: So we should probably move on to the uh, the jazz record that you wanted to discuss, but I did want to tell one more sort of story about like, this is this is told by Brian Goodman um, in his book, The Nonconformist. And it's a story, Skworecki, uh, told about a, a potent translator, Jan Sabrana, and it should be noted that Skvorecki, um never, never allowed the truth to muddy up a good story too much, which, you know. Good for him. I think so, so who knows if this is accurate, but so uh, Sabana traveled to the Soviet Union in 1957 to do research for a series of Isaac Babel translations. Uh, to help finance the trip, he decided to smuggle a small supply of fashionable Czech bras and plastic rain tote- coats, known as condom coats, into the Soviet Union. And this is Skloreki. To divert the attention of the Soviet customs officers from his valuable black market goods, he displayed on top of his belongings in his luggage, luggage a British edition of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls the ruse worked. After a long discussion, the customs officers confiscated only the Hemingway novel, leaving his other contraband undetected. When Sabrina reached the port city of Odessa, Babel's birthplace on the Black Sea, he traded his last condom coat to a group of modish-looking young men hanging around the old harbor as payment for his black market goods. He received an illegal jazz recording. Ah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um so when I told you, I, would, I wanted to do this, uh, this essay about playing jazz under, under the Nazis and under the Soviets, uh, you immediately knew which album you wanted to pair with it. And you want to set it up for us? Yeah. Mel Waldron,
0: who is a, a great jazz pianist. Um, sometimes compared to felonious Monk, kind of unfairly to both. He's not as great as Monk, so it's a bit unfair to do that, but he is uh, brilliant in his own right and uh, has an original playing style, original phrasing. Um, My brother called I was talking to my brother about him and he called him, um, my brother Harry, who turned me on to him, called him the ultimate maximalist minimalist And I sort of, I get what he means by that. I couldn't translate it into musical notation, but he has a minimalistic playing style that is yet distinctive. Like his phrasing is distinctive and um, where he is on the beat is distinctive. And he's not a virtuoso by any means, but he's a, great composer. He's got a late record called signals that I, I really love.
1: And talk about two different stages of his career. So he, he played for Billy holiday accompanied her during the last two years. Yes. 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 And in the early stage of his career, he played what he called in music, right. Where
0: that's what Waldron called it.
1: Yeah. Where okay, he later moved to free jazz. Right. So, um, at first he you know he he play music that was more structured that had his more established forms and uh and um and then he moved to and he started playing with Mingus, Dolphy uh and became more involved with free jazz about sort of limitations or rules he also there's a kind of period in his life where he had a heroin overdose and he kind of <laughs> lost the ability to play. Well, actually, so he started out on sax, heard Charlie Parker's playing sax and was like, forget it, (laughs) I'm switching to another instrument, um, which I like. But then had a heroin overdose, had to teach himself to play the piano again, which he did by listening to his own records. And he had a sort of, I think uh, heard somebody describe it as the earlier period is more lyrical, and the later period has more angular playing, which does seem influenced by Monk, though um, not quite the same. Uh, but he would still play both. There's a there's a bit where he was talking about, um, I, I saw the, when he came back to the United States in the 80s to play a concert, he, he said, you have to go back and play where you came from if you need a dollar. It's good to go back to your roots to check out your foundation and find out if it's still there. So. Yeah, but he moved. To yeah, it. yeah, go for, go for it.
0: Yeah, no, I would say that sounds um, that sounds basically right to me. He played with Dolphy. Mm-hmm. He didn't. Ha- he was not like uh, the frenetic style, or like the um, many notes style of free jazz. Was no,
1: it's not. It's not like a like free jazz. I like free jazz, but sometimes it can be a lot. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Waldron's great, man. I, you know, I find it um,
0: – I'm always challenged when trying to talk about music. I think of some of his stuff as um, uh, somehow he, Mondrian, you know. As a, if I was going to yeah. compare him to a painter, I would compare him to Mondrian. And I, I, I just – I love his style of playing. I like the sound that he gets. Um, the trio who he plays with on this record – um, Reggie Workman on bass and Ed Blackwell on drums is, you know, his trio for many years. At the end. Um,
1: and this record is great. for the name. It's Mal Waldron
0: plays Eric Satie is the name yeah. of the record, and Eric Satie is this very strange late nineteenth century, early twentieth century French composer who is a some something of a cult figure has a mystique around him, which he did a lot to cultivate while he was still alive. He was a Rosicrucian for a while. He dabbled in all kinds of occult mysticisms. He was a deliberate avant-garde eccentric and played up this sort of legend as an avant-garde eccentric. And he was also a a brilliant composer who was – I, you could call him a classical composer, I, I suppose. Um, that that's the, the you know, he, he was a, a European uh, music, not orchestral music. Very um,
1: minimalist.
0: Very, most of his stuff was very minimalist. It is
1: solo piano, piano compositions. Yeah.
0: Yeah, solo piano compositions, melodic with these eerie repetitions and syncopations. And, um, one of his most famous compositions, which, uh, Waldron plays on this records is the gymnopédies. Uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm, mispronouncing that, but he does three of them. It's, uh, it's the French version of a Greek word referring to these rites, the sort of, uh, Ritual uh, involving young men. Um, he was influenced by gothic uh, choral music, and um, I think by chance, gothic chants. And
1: so, it's like simplicity, look, repetition, um, being, space. Yeah, big.
0: Like speaking of monk, simplicity, repetition. a a kind of um, an enormous space opening up in the music. It's not, uh, these are not tight arrangements. The thing I would say about it though, like those are all the sort of technical qualities. The thing I would say about it in terms of how I respond to it. And I would encourage people to listen to Satie's, uh, Gymnopedies, uh, we'll, we'll put the sati version, uh, the sort of, it's not sati playing it, of course, but the sort of traditional interpretation of the sati. <laughs> with the Waldron jazz version of it. We'll put them next to each other. thing you'll get from the Satie version which again i think it was composed in like 1885 so this is not even 20th century it's strikingly modern yeah. it sounds like a film score in part because it's been used in a million films but also it sounds like a film score because it's anticipating what a film score is before there are films.
1: He, so he it is it clearly furniture, really furniture music with some of what he he did, like music that you're not supposed to be listening to intently. It's supposed right. to be in the background.
0: Yeah. I he don't, th- that, right. So he comes up with this idea of furniture music. I don't think Gymnopedies is no. actually one of those. It's no. from the same mind, it's from yeah. the same guy. And it's music that um, creates a sort of Soundscape, but what that means also is like it's not meant to be performed in a concert hall. It, so, in other words, when I say that it sounds like a film score, it's not just that it is reminiscent of the kind of music one hears in a film score that sort of minimalist composition, it's also in the way that it's composed and arranged. It seems at the time already anticipating before the 20th century, already anticipating recorded music. It's already anticipating a kind of music um, which creates a soundscape and is not simply uh, or is not principally a performance piece. It doesn't exist to be played live. It exists as a sort of conceptual arrangement that can be reproduced in the way that syncopation is a kind of automation, you know, or or a digitization. And it's very beautiful. It's very haunting
1: and it's really pretty. I I like the word that comes to mind. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But pretty, but not uh, pretty in the way that like, when you think of uh, Ravel or, or like, it's not, it's not like classical classical music pretty or orchestral music pretty it's like a very modern prettiness it's an urban it's like a urban cityscape prettiness yeah people Um, talk about the
1: the you know when he's writing like the huge influence is wagner right and it's this is like such a distinct difference from that sort of on Sati Wagner was. I didn't know that. No, 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 what no, you're no,
0: saying just in general at the
1: time, sort of this huge, ah, thing the yeah, culture, yeah, gotcha. right? Right, and then right. Sati is sort of goes in an opposite direction from that, kind yeah, yeah. This is
0: the polar opposite, you know. Wagner yeah. is, uh, I mean, it's, it is operatic opera, um, yeah. you know, it, and Sati is this sort of sparse uh evocative right um, urban also so, right? Yeah. Like if, if Wagner is uh, if Wagner is the attempt to resurrect the yeah. medieval a, a Gothic medievalism is the signature aesthetic of modern romanticism, this is an alternate modernity right if yeah. If the Wagnerian modernity is resurrected uh, revitalized medievalism, this is also classical in its way or, or a revival of the classical in its way sati yeah. is also reaching back but he's yeah. reaching back to this these chants and this yeah. uh, sort of lost uh, heritage of um, the, this sort of hypnotic music not overwhelming music but a kind of a music you could get lost in but not be overwhelmed by yeah and also you and- like
1: wagner like to see the ring cycle you need to block out a week and hours and hours and hours and he's making these very short pieces sometimes with like really ridiculous deliberately ridiculous names like one of his um is true flabby preludes for a dog Another one is right. bureaucratic sonata, which is a very funny title. I think. And they
0: they don't resolve into anything. Yeah. They don't like. The, there's not a motif that gets developed and then resolved in the course of the music. They're just um, scores. They're just like, um, but very again, it's very modern in a way. Just striking when you consider his composer, I believe, in 1885, definitely um, pre-20th century. So yeah. that's Satie. Waldron takes this, and I wish I had recorded Harry when he was riffing on this to me a few hours ago because he had like, he had a great riff on this, and I was like – Harry, I know I love this record, but explain to me why I love this <laughs> record. You know, uh, um, and no, yeah, and, I mean,
1: in general, this podcast would be better if you were replaced with Harry. It's just
0: uh, all, all it is. It, it's <laughs> um, but there's only one of him, you know. So I'm a useful stand-in when you can't get the real thing. But he was saying to me, "All right, so that he's got this idea of like, Mal uh, Waldron is the the maximalist minimalist. He's doing a lot." But then he was also saying to me sort of in more concrete terms, like he's got the left hand going, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's Waldron, then he's adding the right hand on top to what the left hand is doing, but he's doing it in this way to quote my brother, quote, the thing with sati is there's no space to fuck around. And so he's not Waldron can't fuck around. There's, you can't, you would ruin sati if you tried to do too much with it which he definitely doesn't so he's not like on gymnopédies he's not soloing on top of it he's not adding like elaborate lines on top of it or piano runs on top of it but his it's it he's clearly playing jazz you yeah. know it is um in the tone he's getting in the sort of way he's phrasing it he's playing the sati composition as jazz, but it's not fusion. He's not trying to invent some new genre yeah. or something. Um, he's just putting the jazz into it in this small, in the, you know, this sort of understated,
1: meaningful
0: way. And it's a thing of beauty. It's just, it's just gorgeous to listen
1: to. Yeah. So No, it's wonderful. Um, I'd never heard it before. I'd I'd heard Mal Waldron before, but I'd never heard this particular album. And it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, uh, Had you heard the
0: Satie? Were you familiar with him at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was familiar with Satie. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I just, and I was like, when you send it to me, it's like, interesting, you know, like, all right, like Mal Waldron playing Satie, what's this going to sound like? And it's actually a, a really good pairing.
0: Um. Yeah, I mean, part of why I thought of it was like, it's just so vital in the human sense and impossible to co-opt politically. I mean, (laughs) you, you could not possibly mold this into any ideological formation. It just can't be done. And... The great thing about it is it, it it's so profoundly resistant to that it would make a fool of the ideologue, you know. <laughs> one of the great things about art is that it'll humiliate a bureaucrat, you know, <laughs> who tries to who tries to take it over.
1: Yeah. Um That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I feel there's only so much one can say about this. We'll include some clips. You should really, you should listen to the full thing. It is on YouTube. I gotta say, I'm not, uh, I'm not a vinyl snob. I'm not an anything snob, really. My I, I don't have the uh, patience for snobbery for the most part. I guess I was a pool hall snob at one point in my life. I was, I had very high standards for pool. I, I guess. I take it all back. I'm a snob about many things, (laughs) probably. Um, I'm just – I'm a lazy snob. I don't have the patience to, like, work up those higher levels of snobbery. I move on too quickly. (laughs) But um, I have to say, though, I I have a record player and a record collection. And the physical, visceral difference – Yeah, when all you know, because I had gotten used to just listening to stuff on my laptop for years, right? And the you, it's like you've gotten another set of ears, yeah, that you didn't realize you weren't using this whole time. It's
1: especially true for jazz. Yeah, I remember the. It's 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 funny you mentioned that because I remember hanging out with Gavin Kovite, Uh, uh, Gavin. Yeah, the writer uh army vet and and he put on a mingus record on vinyl and i hadn't listened to jazz on vinyl uh in a long long time and i just remember sitting there and be like oh my god like i i just i just want to sit here <laughs> and listen to this and do nothing else this is incredible uh and it's not the same i mean in earbuds it's a fundamentally different experience no it's
0: or on the laptop speakers, or on a Bluetooth speaker, which yeah, is like still how I listen to how stuff.
1: That, how that changes the kind of music that's popular and what we listen to, you know?
0: I think it. I, I think it absolutely changes it. I, it might be even more true with film, you know. It might, uh, or equally true, yeah, I the should
1: experience say, of, of of watching digitization.
0: Or, yeah. It's a deadening medium. I mean, it is a deadening. Uh, passive information poor medium that uh, digital film, uh, you know, digital video. Um,
1: Can can I tell you what uh, my, what my um, uh, other idea for speaking of music, my other idea for um, the art to pair with this uh, was, so I was at, uh, my kid, like a birthday party for my son, or in in his first grade class, um, and they put on like there are these like kids versions of songs, um, you know, like pop songs, right? And they put on a kids version of Aria, i ariana grande's seven rings which is basically like her ode to buying expensive things oh right? not to wagner yeah and it's it's like um you know uh Wearing a ring, ain't gonna be no misses. Bought matching diamonds for six of my bitches. I'd rather spoil all my friends with all my riches. Think retail therapy, my new addiction. Whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. Uh, <laughs> I was just sitting in nice. a first grade classroom. I'm joining the Muslim Brotherhood. I, I,
0: all of a sudden, I'm with Saeed Khatab. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel I, I didn't get it
1: before, but I get it now. And. And it's 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 like a, a riff on my favorite things, right? The song.
0: Whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. They say which one I sing now I wanna. Happiness is the same price as red bottom. My soft is giving. Yeah. My skin
1: is giving. Mm-hmm. And 'cause I was I was trying to think of like, you know. I do think there there are types of music that are fundamentally soul deadening, you know <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah, but yeah.
0: again, at least as alive as the vulgar, right? So if you're going to listen to something that's soul deadening, a lot it should be body enlivening. You know the problem I have with like the laptop um, yeah. or earbud experience. Is that it's both soul and body tending? It's not as <laughs> at least as alive as the vulgar. Like, you know, it's it doesn't have. It's not stimulating. It's not um, physically, emotionally, mentally. It's it, it's not stimulating at all. And when I put on a record, man, I, I don't have sophisticated. Ears. You know, I'm not somebody who picks up on like minute distinctions and speaker quality or anything like that, but um, it's just that you feel it in your body. It feels different and you can sort of, you register different parts of the sound in different parts of your body. You, you start to realize like, ah, oh, this sound has some shape to it. It's not just um, a sort of, you know, a, a needle Shooting into my ear, yeah. Um, but listen, I, I don't want to mess up kids' birthday parties. You know, if, if they want to listen to Ariana Grande, that's their business. Um, so we mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm going to say it again now. December fourth, that's a Monday, from four thirty to six thirty p.m. We're going to have a a live event with the great George Shalaba, who is primarily known as a Patreon subscriber to Manifesto Podcast, but is also actually quite an accomplished writer in his own right, somebody Phil and I both hold in very high regard. And we're going to be uh, discussing last men and women, George Shalaba, and the challenge of modernity. Um, Listen, in all seriousness, if you don't know who Shalaba is, he's one of the great living um, American Mental Letters today. He's a phenomenal essayist, uh, a sensitive, intelligent, original thinker, uh, somebody who I'm thrilled to be in conversation with, and uh, we hope to see you all there. So we'll be sending out a link to put it on the calendar, December 4th, 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will
1: ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.